Ready, Brandon? She was playing with that. Would you like that? Kind of matches. Good morning again. So we've uh, had an announcement about next Sunday. Uh, next Sunday being Christmas, uh, falling on Sunday this year. We want to uh, emphasize the joy and the family nature of Christmas. And as you come to church, and I believe that just because it's Christmas Sunday, we, we don't stop our service that morning, right? So we're going to come together. But we're a family, and I want our kids here to feel like that they're coming to a family and they're part of a family. And so that's why we're doing a number of family-related things next week. We've got some surprises. Alicia's already announced we'll have the tables here. Uh, we'll have a warm atmosphere. You'll walk in, and Lord willing, it's going to smell like cinnamon rolls. And that's motivating, isn't it? That'll make you worship right there. Uh, we're going to have a number of guests ourselves, and uh, I encourage you to invite friends and neighbors and family if you're here in town. Uh, they will hear the gospel. It's a great gospel opportunity. It's a great time for someone who has been alienated by the church for whatever reason, I mean a church, any church, to be able to come in, have a time of worship and fellowship and see that, you know, there's a lot of really good things going on. And that's what I'd like for people to see. So that's what we're going to do uh, next week. And so uh, uh, just a few announcements of upcoming events. These are the trailers, if you will. Next Sunday, Christmas, he's here. Then uh, January 1st, after Christmas, we start a new year, hard to believe it. Uh, we're going to be talking about dauntless devotion. Uh, and some of you may be drawing a blank about that. Oh, there it is. Yeah, all right, can you see that? Dauntless devotion is going to be in January 1st. We're going to be back in the book of Acts, Acts 21 and 22. And then the week after that, I'm calling it Great Escapes, January 8th. And we'll see how Paul made some great escapes and God saved his life so that he would actually get to Rome alive. So we'll see that there. So uh, that's what we got in the uh, days ahead. So today, we're going to talk about how Christ began. How Christ began. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to see that. So how did Christ begin? Sophia, how do you think Christ began? How did he begin? What's that? So you're asking me, how did Christ begin? Did he begin? And then you use this big phrase, the hypostatic union? <laughs> hey, we got kids here that know stuff. How does she know all of that? Well, uh, have you all heard that phrase, hypostatic union? Some of you have. Others of you are like, what in the world have I gotten myself into? So I guess today I better tell the whole story about uh, uh, what we've got with Jesus Christ. So let's start with St. Nicholas right off the bat. As we talk today about the son of David, I'd like to first talk about St. Nicholas. Oh, not that one, I'm sorry. How about this one? St. Nicholas, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you profess the consubstantiality of the Son with the Father. <laughs> because St. Nicholas of Myra, which is in southwestern Turkey, uh, St. Nicholas uh, was a bishop, and one of the questions that was going on back then was, what was really the nature of Jesus Christ? And there were a lot of wild ideas and a lot of heretical ideas. And so at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, they 
dealt with this issue of who is actually Jesus Christ. So if you're wondering why I'm getting into all this today, it's because this is the Christmas story. And from this St. Nicholas came the one we call St. Nick today, Santa Claus and all that, which is obviously a modern uh, look at the materialism and everything else related to Christmas and all of that. So I'm not going to go into all that today. There's no reason to. But I want to take you back to the issues they were dealing with because the issue was, what do I believe about Jesus? What's true about Jesus? Who is he? And if I'm being persecuted and I'm going to be tortured and I may give my life for Jesus, I want to know what I'm getting my life for. And so these were some of the questions they were wrestling with back then. And we assume this stuff now, but people often gave their lives or were mistreated to be able to nail down just who it is that, that Jesus is. Um, the big word consubstantiality there in Latin, con means with or together. And so it's the idea that he has the nature of God, the substance of God with the Father. So I will tell you that there's going to be kind of an arc to the sermon today, and I'm going to begin by blowing your minds. That's my goal. I've noticed over the years when I talk to people about the Trinity, I notice this with high school students, but also notice it with adults, that you go like three inches deep on the subject of the Trinity, and all of a sudden people look at you like fish. You know, they're, they're like, Whoa. I'm like, well, what did you think it meant? And the answer is, <laughs> they didn't think it, they didn't know. I mean, you know, but we use the, the word all the time. Same thing with the nature of Jesus, and you're going to see that today. So as I tell you the whole story, the Nicene Creed that came about as a result of the Council of Nicaea, and this is considered to be one of our historical creeds, and you probably know the Apostolic Creed as well, the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And every one of these words and phrases they wrestled with. Born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. Anybody's mind blown yet? What in the world does that mean? Well, basically what they're saying is Jesus was God, the Son, the second member of the Trinity. As such, he was not created. He was not made. God is not a creature. He is a being. Jesus was not uh, created, but in the sense of the relationship with the Father, he was begotten. And then the Nicene Creed goes, it's longer than the Apostles' Creed, but it goes further down into the nature of Jesus for men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Now, if you were to say today, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? I would say, number one, what did you think Christmas was about? And number two, it has everything to do with Christmas. It's all Christmas. I saw this, uh, you know, off the internet, you know that everything is true. So I saw this the other day. I have no idea who Brain Static is. I want a Santa movie where he's actually St. Nicholas of Myra. Three kids run away from home and find a portal to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Then the kids watch him debate the promulgation of canon law. 
In the end, they return home and tell their parents that presents aren't important so long as Pentecost is counted 50 days after Easter on the Roman solar calendar and not the Jewish lunar calendar. <laughs> yeah, so y'all still with me? We've had a microphone packet drop here. All right, we got it. Great. So then I saw this meme. You know, I love memes. I hope I'm forgiven for that, but I love memes. And I saw this one. Homoousios or homoousios. What? You're not the real St. Nicholas. What in the world is that about? Well, this was something that had to be discussed and debated because there were heretics out. And homoousios is one of the same substance. Homoousios in the Greek means of similar substance. So it was the debate over whether Jesus was really God or if he was just similar to God. Now, I know most of you, when you're at Costco, God bless you, but when you're at Costco shopping with 3,000 other people, that this is not first and foremost on your mind. What is first and foremost on your mind is how do I get out of here without doing something that would cause me to go to prison for the next 20 years? But these were important issues related to who is Jesus, and it had to be made solid, and so that's what they wrestled with. And out of that, it's just so funny, how do we get to St. Nick, Santa Claus today? You know, and that's another story for another time. I want to, you're wondering, why in the world am I showing you this? So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. Let's talk about the creation. These were taken from NASA, and this is an actual NASA image photograph. Uh, might be composite, but it's an actual image of Jupiter with an aurora on the top. Isn't that amazing? Any of y'all ever been to Jupiter? I mean, I know we're in Colorado. I'm sure there's somebody who thinks they have. The twin jet nebula, also from NASA. Isn't that amazing? I want to show you one more. I can show you thousands with the sake of time, just a few. Mystic Mountain, the Carina Nebula. You know that tower there, the upper part of it. You know how big that thing is? Three light years. That's a lot. I don't know what that is, but that's a lot. Three light years, the time it takes for light to travel. Three light years, just the tower part. Why am I showing you all this? Because this is tied into Christmas. Why? Well, there's an incredible passage in Colossians chapter 1 that I absolutely adore. He is the image of the invisible God, obviously he, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, those are the angelic forces we think, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When he was in the manger, he was holding the world together. That is Christmas. That is the nature of Jesus Christ. That should blow your mind. And that's why, you know, we kid about it, but to see it reduced to materialism and Santa Claus and some of the songs today, it's like, it's just tragic. But I digress. 
So, Christ the Creator. And what the hypostatic union says, well, let me go to the Athanasian Creed. Anybody memorize this yet? He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. By the way, Alicia will have these slides for you. If you want this, we'll have the slides for you. You're welcome to them. He is completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. Some people taught that God and man somehow blended together. Some people thought that Christ was half human, half God. Some people emphasized the God part and just said the human part was kind of an image. Some people flipped it and said he's human, but he's got God-like qualities. For just as one human is both rational, soul, and flesh, so too is the one Christ is both God and human. The Athanasian Creed. And then that phrase, the hypostatic union, what does that mean and why does it matter? Because it means that God is, Christ is both fully God and fully man, perfectly divine and perfectly human. In other words, 100% God, 100% man, having two complete and distinct natures at once, united in one person forever. That's the hypostatic union. That is orthodox theology. When the scriptures tell us to fight for the faith, what they're saying is to fight for the fundamentals of the faith, the orthodox theology. It's not all the secondary stuff. It's not interpretations. It's not systems of interpretation and secondary doctrines. It is the nature of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, the nature of the Word of God. These are the things we should be concerned about. And if you've never heard the phrase hypostatic union, you need to know it because it's saying Christ is fully God and fully man. Now, who understands this? I mean, let's be honest. God understood it. In the early church, they were wrestling with how to figure it out, and they came up with some really wacky things. But when someone's life was on the line, they wanted to know for sure. If I'm just dying for a human, I want to know about that. But if he's the God-man, well, then that's different. So you should never look at a nativity scene, whether it's humans or ducks, the same way after this. Because Christ, well... Just to really understate it is the most amazing person I and you will ever know. There is no comparison. There is no one like him, literally. Isn't that amazing? What a glorious thing. So God created everything. We know that. And just think about this for a moment. We don't fully understand it. How could we? But the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, lived, communed together in a place without space or time. So it really wasn't a, space, a place. They communed together for eternity. We call that eternity past before creation began. Creation began, God created. Jesus was intimately involved in that. He was the creator or they partnered together to create. They fellowshiped together. Everything was great. Everything was fine. But then what did they do? 
they desired to have the fellowship of creatures. Now, it doesn't mean they needed it. There was nothing they needed. There was nothing they lacked, but they wanted to have fellowship. So they created the animals, and they created us. Now, some of us are thinking, what were they thinking, right? They created us, and we know what happened in the Garden of Eden. So you're going to take the second member of the Trinity who was in heaven, and all of a sudden, with man and woman rebelling against God, he steps down in some form that we call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before the incarnation of Christ when he comes to Bethlehem. He sacrifices the animal for Adam and Eve. He puts leather on them. He appears later. He appeared to Hagar in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord. Hagar is considered to be, in effect, the mother of the Muslims because the line of Ishmael came out of that. He appeared later, possibly, at Sodom and Gomorrah. So he had these appearances where he would come down and go back up. But he resided, if you will, in heaven in a way that obviously we don't fully understand. And meanwhile, God developed that nation. That nation ends up with a tribe of Levi, a tribe of Judah, 12 tribes. And they end up in their homeland. And because of rebellion, they're taken away, and then they come back. And one of their kings, of course, is King David. And David comes to the line of Judah. And Scripture talks about a great prophet to come. It talks about the son of David to come. It talks about the Messiah to come. Messiah means anointed one. So I thought, you know, this would be really interesting to look up for our, our sermon this morning. So I took a look at all the uses of son of God or sons of or, pardon me, son of David or sons of David in the Bible. And I found it quite fascinating. For one thing in the New Testament, it's pretty clear that it's referring to the fact that the son of David in the New Testament is the Messiah. But you know, Jesus was not the only son of David. He was the son of David, but he was one of the sons of David. You know what I mean? His brothers would have been sons of David but not the son of David. All right, now I don't know if you came in this morning to have your mind blown, but congratulations, you're here. So it's pretty amazing. And when you look at the passages about the son of David in the Gospels, it becomes pretty clear that the son of David is associated with the idea of bringing sight to the blind. He came to restore sight, to leave cap lead captives out of darkness. And he had to enter darkness. So I want you to think about this as we come to the Christmas season. Imagine the scene in heaven. The anticipation for the coming of Christ, the incarnation. The angels are excited. Things are being set up. People on the earth generally are clueless. But in darkness... A spark, a young girl who may have been 14 or 15, conceives in a miracle by the Holy Spirit. The astounding nature of God, the hypostatic union, God united with a zygote, the holy zygote. For nine months, the holy zygote, the holy embryo, the holy fetus grow in darkness. 
from nothing to what, six pounds or so, whatever it would have been back then. And finally, he's born, not in the day, but in the night, in the dark. And when he comes to earth, he comes with a specific lineage, and this is critical. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35? And so what I want to do is uh, run through some scriptures here before I do what I'm going to do at the very end. Isaiah 35. So we'll give you a chance to kind of look in the Bible today. And you may want to mark these down. Out of all the passages about son of David and blindness, I have chosen a few today to share with you. Isaiah 35. Isaiah was the greatest theologian of the Old Testament. His insight was fascinating. What God revealed through him was amazing. Isaiah 53 is just an astounding passage. But in Isaiah 35, verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Go a few more chapters over to Isaiah 42, verse 6. Isaiah 42, I'm going to start actually with verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. And Jesus was there. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God has always been about light. We sang about it this morning. When he created, what did he create? Well, for one thing, light. The universe is full of light. It's the light that gives the beauty that we see. Christ was there. Christ created. That's his nature. He's always been about the light. And the darkness breaks his heart. And we bring the darkness, but he brings the light. And that's why he came. So now I'd like for you to turn to the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4. Now, when you hear Matthew 4, if you know your scripture, you're probably thinking, ah, oh, that's the passage about the temptation of Jesus by Satan, right? Anybody connect with that? But notice what happens after the temptation, when Jesus begins his ministry. Uh, verse 12, when John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. That became his hometown, his ministry headquarters. He was from Nazareth, but he settled in Capernaum for his ministry. Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee, on the northern side. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is Matthew 4, 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali... The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is the light. He has come to bring the light into the world. Run over to the book of Luke. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke. 
So Luke is two books after Matthew. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we have again the temptation of Jesus. And then Jesus begins his ministry. In verse 16 of Luke 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. That's his boyhood home. They knew Jesus as a boy. They knew it when he was at school. They knew him when he was playing football. They knew Jesus. But they knew him as the child, and they were the adults. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In studying about the son of David, it has dawned on me, pardon the pun, but it has dawned on me just how important the healing of blindness was in the story of Jesus. In fact, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all the passages, but if you look at the phrase son of David in the New Testament and the Gospels, you will notice that it's often associated with the miracles Jesus did. In a couple of cases, he, he cast demons out of people. In one case, a man who was blind and demon-possessed had the demon cast out, and he was given sight. So there's kind of this association with casting away blindness and giving sight, which really is what he came to do in a spiritual realm as well. So it's no accident that the son of David is associated with giving light. Matthew chapter 11, pop back to Matthew. I find this fascinating, uh, the story of John the Baptist after he finished his ministry when he was arrested and thrown in, in jail. Uh, it's kind of encouraging in a way that John the Baptist wrestled with it. He was human. Like we do, he wrestled and he had doubt. And he saw this bad kind of thing happen. And he was wrestling with it and wrestling with, is Jesus really the one? Now this is his cousin and he should know. I'm sure somebody sent him a card, John, don't wrestle with this, you know, just live your best life now. So in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What a crazy question. To me, it shows just how much he was wrestling and, and doubting, and he was in turmoil and pain, and he had gotten his eyes off the Lord, I think. In verse 4, Jesus answered them and said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to him, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And that's his message. I am the one who has come to give light. John, remember that. Remember, you know better. Remember it. 
Now, I'd like for you to go to John chapter 9, please. John chapter 9. The challenge in speaking about Jesus to me is his incredible breadth of nature. How do you even begin to portray that? I just want us to not regard him as just, you know, like a, a good prophet with divine tendencies, the way the world does. I want you to get a sense today of the incredible depth and breadth of your Savior so that we can worship him at Christmas in, in a more full understanding of who he is. And so in John chapter 9, you'll notice the headline here is Jesus Heals a Man Born Blind. So John 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So everybody knew this guy was blind because he'd always been blind. And his disciples asked him the question that Job asked, or Job's friends asked, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? The Jewish way of thinking, bad stuff happens, somebody sinned to make it happen. Jesus answered it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. I personally would have said, is there another way you can do this? But anyway, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in a pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Well, that had quite an impact on everybody around. Because the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, notice the use of the word see, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And so then they realized who he is in verse 10. They said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So now, guess who enters the picture? The Pharisees, the opponents of Jesus. So verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. But it was a Sabbath day, so they got upset. So verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight, and he told them. And uh, verse 18 the Jews did not believe he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees now we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So they go on and on and on. And in verse 26, the Pharisees are hounding this guy. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love this guy. I'm looking forward to meeting him in heaven. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, huh, why, this is amazing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. There's just so much irony in this passage. That they cast out the one guy that's got a clue what's going on. That the people, the Pharisees who were supposed to know the light the most, knew it the least. And verse 35, Jesus heard they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to them, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So you see, pardon the pun, when you look at the scripture. It's clear that the one who created, who created light, and it was emphasized in Genesis that light was created, is the one who brings light and came to bring light to the world, to Israel, and to the Gentiles, to all of us. And that is why we celebrate him on Christmas Day. Now, there's no reason to go too far into this, but there's a debate about when he was actually born. Was it December? Whatever. I've seen decent enough evidence to say, yes, he was born in December. Uh, but it's not worth fighting over. Uh, but still, yes, it's a great time to celebrate his coming. And he comes, ironically, at the time of the year when we have basically the shortest days and the most darkness. And he comes. And we go through this time, and it's a time of drudgery, kind of, because it's dark outside and it snows and stuff. But we have the knowledge of the light of Jesus Christ in our lives. We have the glory of Christ. We have the hope of Christ. And that's what I pray that you'll experience this week. Nowadays, so many people focus on the negative and they whine and complain about things. And there's a lot to complain about in the world. So why don't this week we focus on what really matters with Jesus Christ and the light he brings. And if anybody is watching on uh, the internet or you know, even in here, uh, it's a decision you've got to make. Do you see that Jesus is the light and the hope that you have, that he is your salvation? Have you woken up to the true light that comes from God? Christ himself. And let's celebrate him in the coming week and beyond. So I'd like to finish by telling you a little story. On a late afternoon, possibly a Saturday, two dusty and exhausted travelers approach a village. He's a strong and virile man of around 30. She's much younger, maybe 15. The trip has been agonizing for her. She's riding on a donkey in full-term pregnancy. 
She is at that point of bursting. She cannot wait for it to be over. Because of the discomfort, she has groaned the entire trip, sometimes silently, sometimes out loud. Her husband understands. He moves the donkey along as fast as he can, but every bump is agony for the wife. As they pass by the fields, shepherds are ending their day. The sheep have grazed and watered. They are full to bursting. The shepherds will soon lie down, one eye open for wolves. In heaven, things are tense. Well, tense for heaven. Not sinful tense. There's a great burst of anticipation. The angels' wings are vibrating with excitement. On earth, in the village, the guest houses are bursting with guests. They've come for that most loved of human endeavors, the need to be taxed. Many of the visitors are hungry. They clamor for food. The innkeepers feel overwhelmed. Even though it's cold outside, they sweat. In the early evening darkness, the couple see the guest house. At last! The husband comes to the door. The host sees their condition. The husband weary, the wife in misery. The innkeeper sympathizes, but the inn is full to bursting. There is no room. So the host does the best he can. He says, I can't put you in here, but I have a sheltered spot where we keep animals. You can put her on some straw. Maybe that will make her feel more comfortable. That's all I can do. The man nods grimly. As a loving husband and as a son of David, he has to be there and he has to trust that God knows what he is doing. In the darkness, the host leads them to the spot. The husband gently takes his wife off the donkey. He piles up some straw and gives her some water. She settles in. And the contractions begin. And what happens next? Well, you'll have to come next Sunday to find out. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for your son. In the hypostatic union, the thing we cannot understand is mortal flesh. God and man come together, not diminishing either one of them. Fully God, fully human, and one person forever. When the spark of conception happened, the holy zygote was formed. Heaven waited with anticipation and waited for nine more months. I cannot imagine the excitement in the heavenly realm the night of the birth. And Father, I pray that we would somehow grasp one small part of that so that in our lives we might have the excitement that Jesus has come into our lives. That he has come. That even though he's the eternal God of the universe and we rebelled against him, that he still loved us enough to come and give his life. 
So we praise you, Father. We praise the Son. And we praise the Spirit. God, the three in one. In Christ's name.